The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. O Lord, our God, we would not have believed it. The child of a lowly Hebrew maid, the Lord of all creation. We would not have believed it if you hadn't told us. We would not have believed it if you hadn't done it. We would not have believed it if your spirit had not opened our eyes and ears to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, our true human brother, our Savior, Redeemer. We would never have guessed that this is the solution to our guilt and our misery. But now that you've done it, now that you've told us, now that you've opened our ears to hear the word, we see it it was the only way, and we thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us that he gave over his body to be crucified for us and took up his life again in resurrection power. Fix our hearts and our minds on Jesus and his glory in these moments that we meditate on your word. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> We're continuing our meditations in Second John. Uh, and uh, we're going to focus today on really the heart of the letter that explains, I think more than anything else, the purpose for which John wrote to this elect lady, this chosen church, and her children, that is its members. Uh, Let me read again, it's verses 7 through 9, but let me again read for us the entire epistle, all 13 verses. Hear God's word. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. 
Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is God's word. May he write its truth on our hearts and transform us by the grace that he shows us here. Well, as I said, verses 7 through 9, which is our focus of our brief meditation today, really get us to the purpose for which John has written to this church and its members. Uh, that purpose has explained, really explains the linkage that we saw in the opening of the letter between love and truth. As John says, he loves this elect lady church in truth, and all who know the truth love her and her children, her members, because the truth abides with us and will be in us forever. And then he gives the blessing, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus the Father's Son in truth and in love. And then the last time, as we were looking at verses 4 through 6, we saw that John emphasized that it's so important for us to walk in the truth, verse 4, which is to say, to heed that old commandment that goes all the way back to the books of Moses, love your neighbor as yourself, but then was made new by Jesus, love one another as I have loved you, that not new but somewhat new commandment, to love one another, which is to say, to keep the Father's commandments. It's important to live in this kind of deep, committed love to one another because there is spiritual danger at loose in the world. And as I just alluded to last time, the first verse of our text for today, verse 7, that little word for or because, Greek scholars, you see hati there, right, in your Greek testaments? Hmm, I don't see many nods, but that's okay. Because... You need to live in love because there are many deceivers who have gone out into the world. In other words, unless we walk in the truth, which is to say unless we love one another, we will be vulnerable to deceive, deceiving antichrists, to false teaching. No matter how brilliant you may be, no matter how well taught you may be theologically, if you don't walk in love, you will be vulnerable to these deceivers. Obviously, the love that John is talking about is not wimpy, kind of tolerant of affirmation. It's muscular love. It's love that wants the best for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. It's incisively discerning. And that's why John now focuses in, if we're loving this way, we will be fortified to expose the deceivers that have left the church but still seem to be traveling from one town to another and from congregation to congregation, exploiting the church's hospitality, we'll see that next time, even as they are sowing the seeds of the church's destruction by their false teaching. So, a few minutes left here. Three questions. What is the confession that sets the deceiver apart from the bearer of God's truth? Why would deceivers balk at making this confession? And then finally, why must we cling to this confession as a matter of life and death? What is the confession? John says, the deceivers are those who do not confess, English Standard Version says, the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. The Greek word or 
could go in a little different direction, who do not confess Jesus as Christ come in the flesh. And that fits very well with the way John describes the same category of error over in 1 John chapter 4, where he says, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ in the flesh having come is from God, and any spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It's propositional truth, but you see how personal it is. It's confessing Jesus for who he really is. For Christ, who, Jesus as Christ who has come in the flesh. Now we survey the ancient church, maybe not all the way back to the apostolic period, but the seeds were there. We know that early docetism claimed that Jesus seemed to be human, but was not really human. We know that early adoptionism, and then some later Gnostics, second century, contended that Jesus, the man, was really flesh, but that Christ, a divine spirit, came down on him at his baptism and withdrew from him before his death. That may be what John is trying to refute in 1 John 5 when he talks about Christ who came by water and blood, not water only at the baptism when the Spirit came upon him visibly, but by water and blood, Jesus is still the Christ, still bearing witness, being bearing, borne witness to by the Holy Spirit as he sheds his blood on the cross. John says the incarnation is the absolute foundation for our faith. The confession that makes all the difference is the confession that John started with in his prologue. The word who was with God, the word who was God, verse 14 of John 1, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the unique Son of the Father, the incarnation. It's true, and it's supremely mysterious. God and man in one person with two distinct natures forever. Who could have invented that? Who could have thought that up? Oh, the Greeks had finite gods that pretended to be human now and then. But the God of Israel is the infinite God, the creator who must not be confused with his creation or his creatures. And yet this God, the triune God, the second person of the triune God has become a real creature, a real human being. Now, I don't want to cut the deceivers any slack, but I think you can begin to appreciate why they might back off from this confession, why they might find it offensive or awkward. It certainly was offensive to well-taught Jewish monotheists who knew that the Lord was not to be confused with his creatures. That's why so often in John's Gospel we find them picking up stones to throw at Jesus. As they say in John 10, we're ready to stone you, not for your miracles, but because you, a man, make yourself God. They knew that couldn't be. That's impossible. And yet it was true. It was offensive to Greek and other Gentile ways of thinking. And that may be the atmosphere that the, the elect lady, this church, is living among in perhaps uh, Eastern Asia Minor. Um, certainly Greek dualists from Plato in the 4th century B.C. all the way through to the Gnostics and the Neoplatonists in the 2nd century A.D. and beyond found it really distasteful to think 
that the supreme divine being would have any direct contact with that, that matter stuff, that earthy stuff uh, that was despised. At least it was insignificant in terms of the great metaphysics of reality. And of course, the reality of the Incarnation not only offensive to Jewish monotheists and offensive to Greek dualists, but it's utterly unfathomable to finite human reason. That's why we speak of it as mystery. That's why the song that we sang puts those two in such sharp contrast to one another. First two lines, second two lines in such sharp contrast. How can this be? How can this be? One person, two natures. Natures with different sometimes contradictory attributes, infinite God combined with a finite human being. The God who knows all things combined with a nature in whom Jesus can say, I don't know the day when the Father will send me back to this earth. Immutable God. And in a person who has a full human nature that increased in wisdom and in stature as well as in favor with God and man. How do you put those together? We can't understand it. And then John says there's actually probably another reason why the deceivers take offense and refuse to confess this, and that is because it's not progressive. It's, it's not the latest new thing. Uh, he says in verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not in the, abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. And that, that verb that he's translating there about moving ahead or progressing, uh, may, he may have picked that actually from their own description of their teaching. We're not just going to stick with that old stuff that the eyewitnesses to Jesus proclaimed to us about God become flesh, about God entering into our human nature. We've got new truth here. We've got progressive truth. We've got something different, something deeper, something more advanced than that old, public, embarrassingly bloody message of Christ and his cross. Interestingly, Paul warned the Christians in Colossae, maybe not too far from wherever this church uh, the elect lady is located. He warned them about the same kind of uh, theologically itchiness for something new. He says, let no one disqualify you by going on into detail about visions, being puffed up without reason by their own sensuous minds, not holding fast to the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body grows with the growth it is from God, that head, Paul had said in Colossians 2, just verses before that, that warning, he said, this head, Jesus, is the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Shocking. How can that be? How can that be? The apostles don't explain the, explain the how. They simply affirm the that, that this is absolutely true. And this is precisely why we need to embrace this, because this 
reality, this confession of Jesus as Christ come in the flesh is a matter of life and death. We almost only sing incarnation songs in Advent from late November into December. Uh, We should sing them all year long. Good thing we sang one today, hmm? because it's absolutely fundamental to know why the eternal Son of God, the Word who was with God and was God, God became flesh. He became flesh for us and for our salvation, as the Nicene Creed teaches us to confess. Why do we need to cling to this confession? Well, John said so in the opening again to his gospel. After speaking of the word become flesh, he says, no one has ever seen God, but God, the unique God, the only begotten God, who is with the Father, has made him known. And that's a theme that we find throughout John's gospel. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, said Jesus. No one comes to the Father but by me. A few verses later, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 17, 3, in his prayer to the Father, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The word became flesh to reveal the Father to us, but he also had a second and absolutely indispensable mission, and that is to reconcile us to the Father. If he only displayed the Father to us and did not deal with the problem of our guilt and our sin, that revelation would destroy us, would incinerate us. But the Son became flesh to go to a cross. 1 John 1.7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He took our flesh and blood, Hebrews 2 says, in order that through that flesh and blood, through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power to inflict death over us, that is the devil, and set us free. The flesh of Jesus is so necessary. The incarnation is so necessary to our survival and our life. Jesus sometimes makes this actually blatantly, offensively obvious. Remember John 6, when he's multiplied the bread and fed thousands, and then he explains that that's all a sign pointing to himself, when he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's not talking about cannibalism. He's not talking about transubstantiation. He's talking about trusting in what he would accomplish on the cross. They took him very literally. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? But Jesus has not. I'm telling you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see how crucial it is that we confess Jesus as Christ come in the flesh. This is why it's so crucial that we abide in the teaching of Christ. As John says, if we don't do that, this Christ, the real Christ, 
the eternal Son who became our human brother, then we lose God. Anyone who does not abide in this teaching does not have God. But whoever abides in it has both the Father and the Son. John's warning us, as he did those Christians many centuries ago, watch out lest you lose your full reward, which is not just some prize God gives, it's God as our prize. I I think he may be alluding a bit to God's word to Abraham in Genesis 15 when God appeared to Abraham. I am your shield, God says, and your very great reward. God is our reward. That's what David said in Psalm 16. Don't lose the reward of having the Father and the Son because the Son has come and taken on our human flesh, real, full human nature, in order to do what he could do only in that way. To atone for our sins. It's not new. It was fairly new in terms of the proclamation when John spoke, but it's not new. It had been announced and promised centuries before. Not new, not hip, not emergent, not the next new thing, not the thing that's going to wow the crowds. It's just, it's just true. It's just true, and it makes all the difference between life and death. Only by clinging to this true incarnate Jesus Christ do we have the Father and the Son. And this triune God is our great reward, given by his own sheer grace to those who humbly trust him free of charge to you and to me, infinitely costly to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you were pleased in eternity past to choose and give a people to your beloved son. Thank you that you were willing to send him into the mess that we've made of this world, into our humanity, to bear our sin and guilt, though he himself was innocent, to take up his life again and to rule and reign at your right hand, and now also to be with us by his indwelling spirit. Father, cause us to treasure the truth that we confess. Jesus, the Christ, come in the flesh every month of the year, every day of our lives. We pray in his name. Amen. You're dismissed. Copyright 2014, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.